We're in 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, We're continuing through our series going through this book, uh, or these two books, I should say, because eventually we'll get to 2 Kings. (laughs) And uh, we are going through, and and we are still sort of in the beginning stages of what will become uh, very uh, sort of a pattern in terms of seeing kings and seeing their failures. Uh, You might as well get used to uh, or be being comfortable with this idea of seeing failure on display because you're going to be seeing a lot of it throughout the rest of these two books. Failures of leadership, failures in terms of how uh, how folks um, interact with uh, their people, but also interact with uh, with God himself as well. And uh, that's what we have here this morning. First Kings 12, the last half of it or the last little portion of it tells this story of Jeroboam and and sort of this this really egregious blunder of leadership that he is going to uh, going to execute. Uh, so just to get back into this, Jeroboam is the king of Israel. This has happened right after the split uh, between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So you have the northern half and you have the southern half of, of what was once God's chosen people. And now here Jeroboam is the king of the northern tribes. And he begins securing his domain, securing this region that he has now been crowned the king of. That's what he's doing in verse 25, where it talks about Jeroboam, as it says, built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. That word built there is actually has more in common with perhaps our word fortify, uh, which is what Pastor Nathan was somewhat referencing. This idea of building up the armaments, building up the defenses of these two locations. Uh, They're very strategic in that sense. Uh, Shechem and Penuel, they're very uh, sort of uh, very tactical positions in which they would be able to thwart any sort of invasion that would come that would perhaps come from uh, the armies of of Judah in the south. But of course, you have to we have to recognize the fact that these aren't just tactical locations that he chose because he wanted to build up the defenses uh, out of for his military. These, as we have uh, somewhat hinted at last week, especially with the city of Shechem. These are very significant historical landmark sort of locations. They were rich with meaning, rich with significance to the people of Israel, reminding them of past, if I dare say, patriarchal blessings. Uh, Blessings to perhaps men like Abraham and Jacob and others of those that you can read about in the Pentateuch. Which leads me to say that I think that Jeroboam is not just choosing these things out of strategy, out of some sort of military sort of design. I think he's choosing them to, yes, curry popular favor with his people. These are significant locations that would immediately be recognizable to the new people that he was reigning over. And and now he is saying, look at what I'm doing. I'm building up these rich historical landmarks. And that's not all he does, though. As was read, notice verse 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he starts talking with himself. He starts reasoning with himself and he, and he reckons that this throne that he is now sitting on, this throne that he has been almost forced to wear by these, these spokes, as the spokesman of these northern tribes, as we saw last week, uh, he reckons that this thing is kind of an unsteady thing. 
That this, this throne that he has, it's not very secure. It's not very sure. And, and, if, and so much so that if my people go back and they, and they do as is the custom, as is the law, and do worship, as he says, do sacrifice in the house of the Lord, uh, they would be swayed. They would be made to turn against him. Which, of course, is it's not unsound logic. It actually makes a lot of sense. For Jeroboam to be thinking this way. Because the temple of course is located in Jerusalem. Which is now in enemy territory. Why would you want your subjects to be going into enemy territory? Just to do worship. And his fear is actually quite logical. He's fearing that, that all of the, the, their proximity to what is now the enemy nation of Judah. Would, what meant really bad news for his tenure as king. <laughs> It would be a really short-lived kingship, perhaps, at least in his mind. Except, except that that's not true at all. In Jeroboam's mind, this is very sound, and, and perhaps in our minds, it's very sound reasoning as well. Except all of this concern that Jeroboam has, while in some ways valid, is completely unfounded. And why is that so? Because, if you go back to chapter 11, which we uh, are, are apt to do... He had already been given a far better word about how his kingdom would be preserved and secured by none other than God himself. God, through the prophet Ahijah, gives him a word on how he is able to secure his throne, to preserve his kingdom. Notice verse, well I'm going to read all this little passage. Verse 26 We've mentioned this little section before. Well, jump down to verse 29. Verse 26 through 28 sort of introduced this character of Jeroboam. He was made by King Solomon one of sort of the captains in his host. In verse 29, and it says, And it came to pass that when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, that the prophet Ahijah, the Silonite, found him in the way. And he had clad himself, that is Ahijah, with a new garment. And they, were, they two were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it in twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to thee. But he shall have one tribe for my servant David's sake and and for which Jerusalem's sake, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel." Because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians and Chemosh, the god of the Moabites and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes and to keep my statutes and my judgments as did David his father. Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince all the days of his life for David my servant's sake whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it unto thee even ten tribes. And unto his son will I give one tribe that David my servant may have a light all way before me in Jerusalem. The city which I have chosen me to put my name there. And I will take thee. And thou shalt reign according to all that thy soul desireth, and shalt be king over Israel. And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with thee. And build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and will give Israel unto thee. Words... 
from God. Words from God himself to Jeroboam in this sort of prophecy denoting how the kingdom is going to be ripped apart, shred into pieces, and yet is going to be given unto him. This elaborate display of Ahijah the prophet rending this garment is meant to be almost a metaphor in terms of what is going to happen in a few short perhaps years from this moment. Where the kingdom would be ripped out of Solomon's hands and yes ripped apart and yet he would be leader over the ten tribes. Which is exactly what we saw happen in chapter 12. He becomes the spokesman and in fact in verse 20 I think it is of chapter 12. He becomes the newly crowned king over this new sort of faction of the tribes of the north. But remember verse 38. Keep that verse in mind. Because here, even as this uh, pronouncement of judgment is happening uh, and and Jeroboam is actually going to be made to be king uh, through the course of this judgment, God upholds his faithfulness to his people. Not only in those verses like verse 36 where he promises that he's going to keep that remnant in Judah, but also through verse 38 where he says that Jeroboam, if you follow me, I will be with you. And yes, he even gives him the promise that he gave to David. That not just am I going to be with you, I'm going to build you a sure house. A confident, steady, sturdy kingdom. I'm going to to build it. I'm going to make it happen. So therefore, as long as Jeroboam was submitting and surrendering to the will of God, to the will of Yahweh, we can say, his kingdom would be preserved. So coming back to chapter 12, this reasoning in his own heart is almost unnecessary. If he keeps the words of God ever before his face, ever at the front of his mind, this worry is is actually not an innocent thing. Rather than adhere to God's words as his sense of security, he seeks, if I can say this, a better guarantee. A better word than God's word. To secure his kingdom and to secure the certainty of his future as the king of Israel. He punts on the promise of God. He says, that's not enough for me. And he takes matters into his own hands. And I think what we're going to see throughout the rest of this little passage is that whenever we take matters into our own hands, it always gets worse. (laughs) It always ends up becoming something worse than what God intended. And this is exactly what happens here. Notice verse 28. So he's reasoning with himself, talking with himself. And he says, I have a problem. There's this problem of religious fidelity, which might lead to people being swayed to betray me. So what does he say? Whereupon, verse 28, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And right away, when we read those verses, big, bright, red, flashing alarm bells ought to be going off. (laughs) We ought to be immediately going, Whoa, what's happening here? (laughs) Two calves of gold. This is what's... Jeroboam reckoned would be the best way to sort of quell this problem of people going back to Jerusalem and possibly being swayed to come back and kill him. 
his advice. I would love to know who he got this advice from. (laughs) This counsel. Perhaps it was those young guys that gave him advice earlier. Probably very much it was. And his solution is crafting two golden religious bulls. (laughs) Which constitutes basically a regression of Israelite religious life by nearly 500 years. Because if you remember, up to this point, if you go back about 500 years, uh, another guy whose name is Aaron crafted a calf out of gold at the base of Mount Sinai. Roughly 500 years before this exact moment. He's repeating the same pattern of disbelief and actually inward hope. And he forges these two calves of gold and he sets them up in Bethel and Dan, as it says there in verse 29, which uh, he, he is here. You notice his words. It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. So he's, he's sort of couching this new religious order, this new system of how they would practice their faith out of a matter of convenience. It's too much for you to go there. Behold your gods. I've made it much easier for you to worship here. But it's not just that it was that these were random sites just because of their geographical, we could say, convenience. These, again, Bethel and Dan, are places of rich religious history than the people of Israel. So you see this. This new chapter of religious life in the, in the land of the northern tribes of Israel was being sort of rendered as almost a recovery of Israel's historic past. Look, at we're building up these awesome landmarks of our faith. And we're making it so much better and easier for you to now practice your faith in worship. And he puts these golden calves there. What's interesting to know is that in this This movement of mimicry by Jeroboam. He doesn't just copy uh, sort of what Aaron did. If you want to read that in Exodus 32. He even quotes him verbatim. If you read verse 28. You can read Exodus 32.4. And he's quoting Aaron when he says. Behold thy gods O Israel. uh, Which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Behold your deliverers, these two golden crafted bulls that I have made. These are your gods. Perverting the religion of Israel by basically plundering their past. By taking sort of moments from their history and he's using them to sway people to his side in order to safeguard his longevity as king. Do you see what he's doing? He's making a religion of his own order. In order to establish his own reign and authority. He's using this religious history. And yes, actually bad. Some of the bad religious history. And couching it in new ways. So that it appears good and right and reverent. Behold your gods. We don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. But he didn't just stop there. At this In this movement of, we could say, historical improvement. Notice verse 31. Because notice what he keeps doing. And he made an house of high places. And made priests of the lowest of the people. Which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month. On the fifteenth day of the month. Like unto the feast that is in Judah. 
And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he offered upon the altar, which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had made devised, which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense there. These verses basically are covering everything. He replaced all of it. All of the elements of worship he changed and replaced and made them his own thing. The places reserved for worship, yeah, no longer going to the house of, house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, now you can go to the high places, notice that phrase, which he had made. The places for worship are changed. The the personnel, the people conducting the worship is also changed. From the priests of the order of Levi, as was commanded and decreed by God back in Leviticus, changed from that to priests of his own choosing. Doesn't matter. As he says, it's from the lowest of the people, not of the sons of Levi. It's people I want. It's people I choose to be in there. To even the time period designated for worship itself. From, uh, as if you want to read there, you can read it. Leviticus 16, 29 through 31 tells us that this feast that he's mimicking ought to be uh, designated on the 10th day of the 7th month. And he moves it to the 15th day of the 8th month. (laughs) He's changing everything. He's making everything his own. This sort of bootleg religion we could call it. That he's fabricating to protect and to preserve the throne that God had given him. Which God had already promised and told him how it would be sustained. (laughs) And he's taking it into his own hands. Saying, I can secure this. Interestingly, some commentators look at this passage... And they have sought to reframe Jeroboam's actions as though they were a positive thing. That this reform was actually a good thing. That he's actually recovering recovering a sense of Israelites' orthodoxy. Which, let me just say, they jumped through a lot of interpretive hoops to get to that point. Because the word is really clear. We don't have to kind of nuance what's happening. Notice verse 30. And this thing became a sin. God is very clear about what's going on. This isn't a good recovery of Israel's past. This is a bad and perverted sort of swindling of the people's faith in order to secure a king's favor. That's what's happening. And this thing became a sin for God's people. And in fact, if you want to read what God thinks about this, you can look ahead to chapter 14 verse 9. Because God himself said, this people has done evil above all that were before thee. For thou hast gone and made the other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger. And has cast me behind thy back. That's God himself declaring what he thinks of this moment. He considers it not as a recovery of good things. Actually, it's as if God's people in Israel had cast God behind their back. They had no longer need for him. They moved on to these religious bulls in Bethel and Dan. Which is to say that there's no contextualizing what Jeroboam is doing. He's 
making these religious and political maneuvers in order to save his own skin. To secure himself. It's a, it's a religious movement couched uh, as such, but it's really just a self-serving movement. How do I safeguard myself? He was determined that his safety was up to him. And you see here at this pattern that we have in these verses. It shows us, I think, clearly that Jeroboam thought a lot about himself. He was both monarch, the leader of the people of Israel, but he was also the patriarch. He was the religious head. He was the royal overseer and the religious, uh, the religious patriarch. And so he didn't bow to some sort of religious authority. He was the religious authority. Such is why he thought he could just move things and mold things and make this religion malleable according to his will. So we could say, in sort of like a metaphorical sense, that what he really enshrined in Bethel and Dan wasn't Yahweh, it was himself. He was putting himself there, securing himself by making sure everything happened that he, so that he was safeguarded. Because he thought very highly of himself. <laughs> I think this is made no more, nowhere more clear than those verses we just read, 28 through 30. Because I'm going to read just, I'm going to skim through it. But notice how many times the word made. Made comes up in these verses. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he set them up, one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people and went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people. And Jeroboam ordained, which is actually the same exact word, made, made a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves he had made, and on it goes. Emphasizing the point that this is a religion of his own making. He's the one that's doing it. He's the one ordaining and making and rearranging all of these things according to his needs. Religion for Jeroboam wasn't a given thing. It was something that he could, be, uh, he could mold according to his preferences and needs. And even we could say conveniences. Which leads to verse 33 which has the historian's phrase where he says he had devised of his own heart. Which in my mind is sort of the, the preeminent indictment of Jeroboam over this whole little passage. All of this stuff he had devised in his own thinking, in his own heart, in his own soul. It didn't come from God, it came from himself. We could say, to use a New Testament sort of passage to uh, sort of articulate this, he chose to walk by sight and not by faith. He chose to instead be so governed by what he could see that he punted on faith in the God that had spoken to him and given him words of promise and preservation. Because he saw what he thought was the definite impending ruin of this new kingdom that he was coming to sit on and rule. And instead of trusting God's words, he trusted in what he could see. What he could control. 
I can control the people by telling them to go to certain places and by making them see, quote, their gods and their deliverers. Instead, what he is doing is he was punting on all of God's promises to him. He was jettisoning them out of his faith and out of his life such that he was being crowned king. (laughs) King of his own heart. Which is actually the legacy of Jeroboam. As we're going to keep going in the next couple chapters, especially chapter 14, where we read of his demise, there's almost this articulation that, that they have walked, kings have walked in the way of Jeroboam, it says. His legacy is such that everyone remembers how he was swayed away from the truth of Yahweh. And I wonder... If you were to examine your own life this morning, would you be able to admit that you are a frequent disciple of this same sort of religion? (laughs) Or this way of thinking about religion, this quote, bootleg religion, where instead of walking by faith, we walk by sight. Where instead of gripping and holding on to God's promises, we instead resort to fleeing to uh, other gods that we uh, feel as though they're more comfortable, more convenient. They actually give us something to see and to touch and to feel. We often do this. Maybe I'm just speaking from my own heart and you don't have to admit it. (laughs) Maybe you're more pious than me. (laughs) Maybe you never struggle with this, I don't know. But so often it's so easy to to be swayed to believing in something else other than God because he seems a little bit hidden. I think this is the biggest problem in the country that we live in today is that most of the people in this country have found God to be hidden. And so instead of running to where they can find him, which is the church, which is the scripture, they've run to other things. You know, some people would say, you know, economists or whoever, they're doing those big surveys and whatever. They say that this generation is the most non-religious generation in the history of the United States. In fact, there was like a Gallup poll a couple of weeks ago that said the average sort of attendance across to any church, regardless of denomination, had finally dipped below 50%. For like the first time in like, I don't know, like 50 years or something like that. It was like at 49% of all adults go to some sort of religious assembly. Which, so it's even less than that. They go to a Protestant assembly or whatever. Back several years ago, it was like in the 70 percentile. Which makes us feel as though that's true. That this is the most non-religious generation ever. That no one's going to church anymore. This is the, the rise of the quote religious nuns, right? And I think there's some truth to that to a certain degree. I think that's pretty accurate and maybe perhaps just by attendance but i would actually say in it, we're not the we're not the most non-religious i would actually say we're the the most religious generation except that we're religious about other things that aren't god one of my one of my friends he wrote a book and he says this in it Our religious crisis today is not that religion is on the wane but that we are more religious than ever in about too many things We're we're more religious than ever except about what we ought to be religious about. 
It's religion of our own choosing and of our own making. We see God and he's not working. So we go to find some other place where we can find that sense of belonging and meeting and purpose and hope and peace. And some, for some reason, we've transferred those, those searchings and those pursuits to some place other than the church. Where now we get to choose our religion. What it looks like. Where as perhaps former generations went to the church and that was their primary source of religion. Folks today are getting the quote benefits of religion outside of church. For instance, we have the the religion. I think one of the most predominant ones is the religion of like fitness and, and dieting and such. Where you can find your sufficiency and your wholeness and your well-being by being so precise about how you care for your body. This is like the the religion of like CrossFit and whatever. (laughs) Which if you've ever been to those, and I have only one time, it's very much like a religion. It's very, very, it's it's formulated that way, which I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of your body. I'm just saying that if you put all your hopes and quote your religious hopes into that, you're going to be sorely mistaken when you find out that that doesn't give you what you want. And there's all these different ways we could look at this. The religion of work, where you find your sufficiency in what you do and what you can achieve through your career. There's the religion of, of politics, which might seem so much more vocal in our current generation, but there's all these different ways that we have, we have replaced God for something else. These, quote, secular religions, we could say. And they're always couched as what? As places where you can find hope and community and belonging and meaning and all those, quote, benefits of religion. Except it's just religion of their own making, of their own choosing. Much in the vein of Jeroboam, who decided that it was way more convenient for his people to go here. This current generation has decided that they don't need church. They can do it either online or not at all. And it doesn't matter. Because they have found their religion somewhere else. Outside of the walls of a church. But the only problem is, not the only problem, the chief problem All of those other religions that the secular society pushes on us as as very good forms of finding those things. They all lack one key ingredient. One fundamental element of religion which the word of God has in droves. In short, it's this person whose name is Jesus who forgives sin. No other religion that you could go to, and I mean that in like the religious sense, but also the sense of going to those other secular forms of religion. Any of those that you could go to and say, I'm going to find my hope in this. They don't have a person who forgives, who offers the remission of sins for free. They don't have that. Only the God of this word has that. Only the religion of this scripture has that. No other place offers forgiveness as a free gift. And therefore none of them offer what is truly needed for change and transformation. No one can be reconciled when there's no one who is doing the reconciling. When there's no one that's actually performing that work. 
It's just, I hope that's all law, that's all judgment, that's all performance. Every other religion that we could go through is a religion of performance. Where if you do something really well, you will be rewarded. Which, I would say, is not a very hopeful form of religion. Which makes the religion of the God of this Bible so much more otherworldly and awesome to read about. Because it actually flips the script. And he says, I have offered you eternal life as a free gift. All you do is have to believe. It's an entirely different sort of religion. Not of our own making. Not of our own choosing. Not of our own fabricating. And maybe you think that's a stretch. (laughs) Where and why and how are you getting Christ out of this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 32 again. Because Jeroboam here, as we noted a couple of minutes ago, he switches the day when this supposed feast of sacrifice is to take place. As we noted previously, it happens one month later than the divinely appointed day, which was not in the eighth month, but was divinely appointed in the seventh month. And there's that interesting phrase there in verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. He wanted to mimic what was going on there in Jerusalem according to God's word, but he wanted it to be his own thing. He wanted it to be definitely something that you could say, this is, this is Jeroboam's thing. But it leads, or at least it begs the question to me, what feast is he copying? What, what feast is he trying to mimic? Well, of course, if you read Leviticus 16, this is none other than the feast which memorialized the Day of Atonement. Which if you read that whole chapter, Leviticus 16, which I would 1000% advise you to do. It's basically the gospel of Leviticus, which we don't often think of Leviticus having gospel in it, but it very much does in that chapter. Because the day of atonement, which it goes through all of the liturgy and all of the ways that they were supposed to go about it. It was a day which decidedly prefigured what Christ himself would come and accomplish. It was a day that they would, the people of Israel would be made to see their need for a redeemer and that God has promised one to come. To perform this work for them. So this little move of the day of this feast is not a little thing. He was essentially forsaking all of the, of the divinely appointed sacrificial system. Along with the sacrifice himself. We could make it this way. He is denying Christ by moving this feast. It's again something of his own making. Something of his own concocting. Something of his own fabrication. And he's not allowing now. He's putting blinders on the people's eyes and saying, you cannot see your Redeemer. And he's counting it and moving it in a way that he's actually trying to make it a positive thing. Again, this is a religion of Jeroboam's own choosing. As it said in verse 33, that he had devised of his own heart. He had thought of a, a, quote, better way. 
a better way for his people to be religious. But in so doing, he lost entirely what made Israel's religion so profound in the first place. Namely, that it offered an atoning, sacrificial lamb that has nothing to do with them. You see, contrary to uh, the popular rhetoric of today, uh, religion is not what you make of it in your heart. Don't let your heart be your guide. Don't just, quote, follow your heart as you see on Pinterest all the time. That's very bad advice. Religion especially ought not to be followed there. It's not what you make of it in your heart. Because a religion of our own making, of our own devising, as Jeroboam has done here, is a religion that's moldable and malleable and flexible. And it's only as sturdy as our current little season of devotion. And exactly this is not the, the, the way which, in which religion is known by the word of God, the scripture that you have in front of you. Actually, it's entirely opposite of that. Because the religion of this scripture doesn't bend according to our whims and fancies and conveniences. It's a religion which is found in what God himself has declared about himself. Which is, we could say it this way, it's a religion of the word. And I mean that in all the senses you want to take it. Religion of what God has declared and ordained through his mouth. But also religion of the word of God himself who has come and dwelt among us. It's a religion that is forever settled in heaven. Which we are everywhere told in the Old Testament. A religion that is settled by what God has decreed. That is founded and preserved and strengthened and championed by none other than the word of God himself who comes to be with us. As it says in John 1 that in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Showing us what all of this looks like in tangible bodily form. We don't need another religion of our own making. We need a religion that's solid to the core. That's steadfast no matter what the season of life that we're enduring. No matter what that has in store for us. We need uh, something that offers uh, something that's genuine. Something that's real. Something that's authentic. Something that truly changes. And that's what this book offers. Because this book shows us who is the word of God. Who is the son of God. Who forgives the, the, the people of God in their sins. Precisely because he has taken their sins for them. No other religion has that. No other place offers that. This is only where it's found. And I'm not meaning just inside the walls of Stonington Baptist Church, but inside the covers of this book. It's a religion that offers forgiveness for free and says that this kingdom is coming and it's already settled. Just believe this is the work that I would have you to do. Believe on him who he has sent. Believe on this one who has settled forever your present and your future in light of what he has already done. That's what this word shows us. That's what the religion of Israel was supposed to make them see. 
there's a better word for their days. A better capital W word for their days. Namely, coming through the person of God. Who comes down in the person of Jesus. Who takes the worst of what sin can offer and he leaves it in the grave. And yes, it was so amazing. The the answer to all of those false hopes of all the false religions comes in the person of Jesus. Who tells us. Instead of, uh, instead of offering a, a better sort of hacked way to find or make or work for hope and community and belonging and meaning and purpose and all those things that people think religion will give them. You know what he says? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I am gentle and lowly of heart. Here Jesus is expressing the heart of the religion of God. Which says come believe and take the free gift. Not come and work and find and seek and try to get in. And work your way through and hope that you make it. No it's a free gift that's offered to you by what God himself has declared. And he has declared it already. That I have already cleared the way for your salvation. Clear the way for you to find those things that you so long for and you can find them only in me. This is his invitation. This is his word to us. It's a word which answers this bootleg religion of Jeroboam and all the bootleg religions that we are so deceived into believing and ascribing worth to. No. I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't work out or you, you shouldn't do well at your job or that you shouldn't try to, to, to find a sort of a, a excellence in all those things. But if you make those things the place where Jesus is supposed to answer, they will become places that lead to your downfall. Just like Jeroboam's legacy. He is one who walked away from God and punted on all of his promises. He had already been told how he was to preserve his kingdom. And guess what? You and I have already been told how we might have eternal life this morning. Not by our own working, but by our belief. Do you believe this morning? Or are you still ascribing to this, this, this false religion of a God of your own choosing and making. And you're trying to work your way in. And if you just do enough stuff, you will get there. If you just are the, the, the best parent you can be. The best spouse you can be. The best employee that you can be. If I just achieve enough excellence in all of these venues, then I will make it. And then I will be whole. That's a religion of no grace. Because there's broken families. So what do you do there? There's, there's lost opportunities and lost jobs. 
The gospel answers that and says, yes, despite knowing how awful and wretched you are, I can make you whole out of myself. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of what I have done and accomplished. It answers all of the vast longings of our soul and says, here, take and have, because my gift to you is myself. What a wonderful gospel. Which we often forget. And I'm, I'm going off notes. We often forget what the gospel means. It means good tidings. Can there be any better tidings than that? The evangel. The, the quote good news of God. Is that God himself comes and does these things for us. His puny wretched sinning people that always break their promises. And that always fail and mess up and screw up. And they always make things worse. And what does God come and say? I will make you whole. I have come to make things new through my blood. He sets things right. I co-opt a, a saying from Matt Shively. He gives us true shalom. Peace. Beyond understanding. Peace beyond degree. Peace in a settlement that is not inside of you. But it's because of him. Because of what he has promised to do. And With God, as we have everywhere seen, I hope that you get this. What he promises to do, he does 1,000 and a million percent of the time. His words are as good as facts. Therefore, when he promises a deliverer, he takes up... He takes up that position himself. And he fulfills the position of deliverance by being our deliverer. And he promises to take away our banishment by being banished himself on a tree for us. This is the gospel. The religion of this word. Which is better than anything else you'll ever find. It's not the religion of some sacred cow. As Jeroboam put up in front of the people. It's the religion of a redeemer. Who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let us pray.